Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. He wants to get in. Now oh, we're already in. All right, welcome to Hammer Factor 51. My name is John Grace, show producer here at the Hammer Factor. I'd like to introduce John Weld, co-owner of Immersion Research, as well as policy director of the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman. Hammer Factor 51, boys. I don't know if it was anonymous boat review guy or what it was, but we got a really, really good response to that episode. Well, I have to back up for a sec. I actually have a new name. Oh, yeah? Predicated on big news that you guys know, but many people don't. Yeah, my new name is actually Jaw Treats. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually, I had picked out Gucci Treats, but in a long, drawn-out negotiation, I actually licensed that particular name to Dave Fuseli. He'll be using that name to some extent. But he has exclusive rights of Gucci treats, but I'm, I'm jaw treats. All right. Well, before we get into, the, into that too deep, this episode of The Hammer Factor is brought to you by Four Corners River Sports in Durango, Colorado. Located on the banks of the Animus River, Four Corners has been helping customers get on the river since 1983. With a huge selection of whitewater boats, gear, and accessories, we can help facilitate any of your kayaking needs. We have the ability to ship boats, boards, and gear nationwide and offer especially affordable shipping rates to Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and parts of Wyoming. We also offer free shipping on any accessory orders over 100 bucks. In addition to a well-stocked retail store, Four Corners is home to a full-service kayak school. We offer classes for paddling of all abilities from ages 6 to 100 years of age. Whether you're looking to improve your role or learn more about river running, our top-notch ACA certified instructors can help you build your skills. Though this season's snowpack may be less than we'd hoped, there is still plenty of paddling to be done in the Four Corners region. Four Corners is the last stop before the Grand, as well as many other desert multi-days, and we are the premier sponsors of Animus River Days, one of Colorado's oldest whitewater events held on June 2nd, just right around the corner. Um, use your home, uh, use your promo code hammer factor, all caps for 10% off your next online order. Um, being this is the last <clears throat> week of their sponsorship hammer factor, all caps, 10% off, get it before it's done. I believe it's peak snow melt in Colorado right now. Mm. I think it's just a matter of time before Trump lays into the post office on those cheap shipping rates. Ooh, I don't know. I think you should look into it. Yeah. I don't know, but uh, use your Hammer Factor promo code because it's about to run out. So we got quite the stack show today, guys. We got uh, obviously our rants and raves. We've got uh, we're going to dig deep into pack rafting. We've got uh, anonymous boat review guy is back, and pretty much you guys, I think we could be done doing this show and just hand it over to him at this point. Right. Um. Anyway, he's gonna he's gonna have like his own spinoff show, like Joni loves Chachi type thing. <laughs> I agree. Um, that's a wow, that's sound a dated alarm. reference. <laughs> <laughs> <Our boys>. Wow. <laughs> um, anyway, to get us back on the rails, I have got to go, believe it or not, this is crazy to say, tour kindergarten class today at 530. So 
this show will be on time. And if I just have to leave, you guys are going to have to shut it down. So, um, well, we're going to get into, uh, you know, we always kick off with Lewis here. And I, I think we'll get right into some. What do you got, Will? I, I get to make my big announcement. Are you really going to do it? I'm really going to do it. Oh, okay. Well, let's hear it. I thought it was, you were just going to end it with the uh, jaw treats. No. No, you ready? Do I get a drum roll? Uh, we're moving to Hood River, Oregon. That is exciting. So tell us about that. It's uh, a good question. I don't know. We just got, like, over the winter, Karen and I got this notion in our head that we could move anywhere we wanted. We have no problem with West Virginia. In fact, we love West Virginia in a lot of ways, but we were like, why not? We're not getting any younger. Where would we want to move? So we actually, we actually sat down and looked at and thought about where anywhere in the country we could move. And after a lot of debate and some travel <laughs> visiting, and we ended up at Hood River. We did look at Bellingham. I remember some guy was hating on me for, for busting on Bellingham, but Bellingham was definitely shortlisted. Um, and save for a tragic housing market, I think we would have ended up there. Um, but at the end of the day, it's Hood River. So we're going to keep uh, the warehouse, and our shipping will still be at a confluence because we own Buku warehouse space there, and it's super cheap. But I think our offices and we'll certainly have a repair center out there in Hood River. So you West Coast paddlers will have to deal with us. <clears throat> well, that's pretty exciting. Saucy attitude. So yep. this this is big news. I think didn't wasn't there just news of an IR store that was coming out at? Yeah, that's still happening. Mm -hmm. It's okay. going to be in Confluence. Yeah. Okay. A lot going on in the IR world. Well, congratulations. I'm excited to uh, hear the stories. Where are you going to stay at? Are you going to just bunk with Lewis or? Yes. Thanks, Lewis. Did you? I, I'm glad you brought this up, Grace. It's a little awkward, but Lewis, uh, me and the kids and the cat and Carol will be staying with you. And we're going to need some place to plug, plug some slug machines. What do, the kids, what do the kids think about the whole thing? Straighten up the couch. Uh, I think they're excited. They don't seem to care, actually. That, that was the surprising part about it, but... Huh. Well, yeah. Oh, man, I'm excited. Grace, you're going to be jealous when, when me and Welder coming in from Dawn Patrol and sitting down at the same place to record the Hammer Factor. Oh, man, I will be jealous. There will be no doubt about it. Well, I'm stoked for you, Well, you're, It's going to be nothing but fun for you and Karen and the kids. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Anyway, let's move on. Enough <sighs> about me. <sighs> All right, so... <laughs> I've, I've kind of pulled. I've, I, can we talk about you guys skipping belly, skipping the gorge on your West Coast tour and stopping in for lunch and deciding on the strength of the White Salmon Baking Company that this is in fact the place to live after all? We had gone to Belling. We flew out to look at Bellingham, and uh, then we flew to Portland, and we were driving to Bend. We were going to look at Bend as well, and uh, and we just stopped through Hood River, and we kind of discounted Hood River as just being kind of too small for us. But we stopped at Yuri's Bakery in White Salmon, and that was pretty much the end of it. That's that was the, the killer move, right? The, the, the death blow. <laughs> like, you want to go biking? No. You want to go for a little white lap? No. Let's just go to the bakery. Okay, we're moving here. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, here's the thing. To think that there was a well-thought-out plan behind any of this would be a mistake. That This is the most half-assed thing we've ever done. I mean, it it's going to work out fine, I'm sure, but there was no planning here, or very little. I, I definitely... Hood River was uh, was not even talked about for a little while. And then all of a sudden it was the spot. I like that. Yeah, right? 
Um, all right, on to some ham. It would also be the best paddling paddling town in the country, right? Yeah, I think you're. I think just instinct took over, and both you and Care were like, "This is the spot." Could be right. All right. Um, Jaw treats. All right. Normally we go into a uh, a little bit of a Lewis segment, but we've got some mail that's we're pretty much going to throw over to Lewis. So I think we should get right into viewer mail here. Um, let's start with uh, Amber Lee Johnston. Um, she comes at us by email. She says, "Love the podcast." I got to say though, Lewis G is boring me with all his political talk. Seriously, I'd rather hear. <laughs> Sorry. Seriously, I'd rather hear Corey Sheehan talk his philosophy on kayak safety. Wow. That is a t- takedown. Whew. Man. Lewis, do you have anything to say about that? I've like kind of run out of diplomatic things to say, but you know, if, if, if you prefer to get your, your news in Facebook meme form, that's your decision to make. And if you want to, uh, I don't know. It sounds like the sort of person who like doesn't like reading books. I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, I thought you'd get a kick out of that one. Um, <laughs> it just makes me want to just do like longer Lewis segments. When that comes in, I'm like, all right, you got it from here on out. Um, right. Here we we'll go. Just line up the haters like one after another. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, hey, you just have to listen to it for for ten minutes a week. It's my my life. <laughs> um, this comes at us. This comes at us from Hayes. Before we get into Hayes' email, Lewis, did you race the little white? Tell us about. Give us a little little white race recap. Yeah, man, it was good. It was. Uh, I think we had about fifty racers in the individual class. Three women this year. Uh, maybe half a dozen or so teams just like i don't know man it was like really good vibe just you know like no carnage super good group of folks um water was low for sure uh gerd absolutely smashed um we did the thing at the party where the the gopro or the top four guys is edited so that you can like watch everybody racing head to head and just like watching gerd i mean man just like so impressive. I mean, I don't think I saw him take a backstroke in, you know, 15 minutes of racing and, you know, like didn't touch a rock as far as I could see, like never got his bow wet. I mean, just like perfect. And then he won by probably close to 20 seconds. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, just like super, super impressive. It was cool. Off the top of your head, do you know the difference in last year's times versus this year's time? Because it was a good bit higher last year, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was like 3.8 last year and it was probably two eight this year okay so it was probably a minute and a half difference or more lots of lots of little rocks out there i think the plan is to to have the race a little earlier next year like we'd like to do it in april or even march but it's been you know it's been organized by capo at world-class kayak academy and he kind of has to do it around the school schedule so that's kind of been the reason we've had to do it so late coming up to you know, like most years now. And so uh, it seems like he's got something figured out. We'll be able to do it a little earlier next year, which will be nice for water. Yeah, yeah. It's Some years are high, some years are low. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I think that we could have a good, consistent quality race in, in April. And I think it would be a little nicer for people wanting to come come visit. And even those of us living here, you know, it's like I feel like in March or April, this is really where you want to be. But by the end of May, it's like if you're – 
on tour. I think you'd probably rather be in California or Idaho or somewhere like that rather than the gorge. Like we're kind of, our season's kind of ending, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Um, all right, let me throw this over to you. This, this email comes in from Hayes. I'm not going to read the whole, whole email, but he references an article in, um, what article was this in high country news? Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Um, the article's titled your Stoke won't save us. Basically, he says, how does enthusiasm for outdoors translate into action on environmental issues beyond recreational access? Would love to hear you all discuss this and maybe even bring the author on the show. Now, we don't have the author on the show, but the author does reference the Outdoor Industry Association. How should we start this? We should sum up the article. Well, Geltman, I mean, Geltman, you were you were a whole piece on this, right? Yeah, I, I, I read this thing and I it, it vexed me greatly and... I, I just finished writing a, a pretty long vitriolic response to it that our comms director, Tanya, is currently shopping around, and it'll be up on the, the OA website, if nowhere else, in the not-too-distant future. But I think she was sending it off to High Country News first. But, I, I mean, the point is just like, oh, basically whatever sentiment we have as outdoor recreationists with regard to stewardship and conservation values, it's not as, as good or as pure as, you know, somebody who has a conservation biology background and, you know, cares about these things, doesn't want to ever go visit them, just wants to, you know, look at pictures and not geographic or whatever. And it was just like, I, I mean, it, he, he like hung the whole article on this, that quote from Edward Abbey about being a half-hearted enthusiast and saving half your time for your own enjoyment of the outdoors. And he's like, ah, you know, like you going out and getting rad isn't going to save the, save the, you know, public lands or the environment or whatever. And it was just like, it was just like such a straw man argument. And so much of it was, (laughs) how to explain this? I just feel like it's like, it's like, taking criticisms of the aesthetics of the ways that people enjoy the outdoors and saying, you know, like if you're a bird watcher or you're a Tenkara fly fisherman, your aesthetic appreciation is so much greater for the outdoors. And it's so much more appreciative than people who are riding full suspension mountain bikes or skiing powder, like you shred dogs just don't get it. And it's just like the whole idea of taking your aesthetic preferences and turning them into like some sort of moral judgment or some sort of, pseudoscientific argument about, you know, who has greater environmental appreciation is like, it's just such a bunch of bullshit. And he, he cites some like social science research from the 1970s about saying that outdoor recreationists don't have a higher conservation ethic than the population at large. And, you know, that certainly doesn't comport with my experience personally or the people I surround myself with. And, you know, even if that's true, even if we don't have a better conservation ethic, you know, as a demographic than the, the the public at large, if those of us who do are taking action every day and getting things done, that's what matters. It doesn't matter if you sit home, sit at home and like, like finger your prayer beads and recite John Muir verses to yourself or whatever. It's like, if you're not actually doing anything, it just doesn't matter. Like you can have the most pure conservation ethic there is, but until you actually like take some, some meaningful action, I, you know, I don't care. And like the outdoor industry and the outdoor recreation community, we're doing this stuff 
every single day. And, you know, he has some stuff in there just, like, slighting the Outdoor Industry Association, which, by the way, is a trade association representing businesses. And, like, they do have business interests. But, you know, the amount of work they've got done on public land stuff is, you know, I think really impressive. And just to be like, uh, you know, like, you guys aren't as, as good as, like, a conservation biologist. It's like when you take that attitude you're just discouraging people from participating in public lands decision making and like it's just totally unhelpful it's like you know when you look at like the traditional conservation organizations their members are you know by and large in their 70s and part of the reason why young people are totally alienated by that those organizations and what they're doing is that they're like well if you like want to ride a mountain bike like you can't be a conservation advocate or like if you want to go out and you know kayak or whatever it's like that's not as good as as just being like a, a bird watcher and it, it's just like just so tired and like he like spins out this story about how you know when the when the trump administration was proposing the monument reductions he's like well you know like the outdoor industry everybody made a huge deal about bears ears but everybody totally ignored oregon's cascade siskiyou monument which is threatened by monument reductions and you know it's true that bears ears got a ton more attention but what happened was that you know, we raised holy hell about the place that is connected to people's actual experiences. We helped educate our community about the Antiquities Act, about national monuments, about protecting public lands. And so many people took action on that and, you know, made such a big deal out of it that we attached like a really high political cost to those monument reductions. And, you know, thus far, they've looked at the whole rest of the list of monuments that they're thinking about reducing and said, we're, we're not going to do that for now, at least because they realize that people get up at arms about this stuff. So, you know, I would say we talked a lot more about Bears Ears than we did about Cascade Siskiyou, but, you know, the things we did for Bears Ears, I, I would argue, made a big difference in terms of protecting Cascade Siskiyou. Like, if we hadn't done that, you know, maybe they would have cut all of the monuments under review. Who knows, you know? So, I don't know. I just, it, it, I didn't appreciate that article. Yeah, I, I kind of got the same vibe from the article. <laughs> It starts out with the author, Ethan, Ethan, uh, Ethan Link, dis, uh, defining Stoke. So immediately you're kind of like, okay, so you, this is going to be, you're going to hate on something here in this article. But, you know, they go into appreciative versus consumptive. They throw hunters and fishermen up the, under the bus just the same as mountain bikers and runners and other recreationalists. So, Which, again, is just, like, so stupid. It's like, you know, like, if you're in the Sierra Club, like, there are no Republicans in Congress who care what you think about anything. And the hunters and anglers, you know, at least to a degree, those guys have some traction there. And, you know, maybe their conservation ethic might not be like as pure as yours is or whatever, but those guys are getting good work done for all of us. And just to like dismiss those guys is like, oh, they're like consumptive or like they don't count. It's just it's it's so counterproductive. It kind of reminds me of the of the the email I got from the girl who said I had to re-edit that film on the Nolichucky. So the so the girl wasn't turning over the rock in the river on the on the video. Yeah, I thought about that when I read that article, actually. It's like that is the exact same attitude. Um, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. Well, do you have anything to comment on this? No. Yeah. And I mean, look, I mean, like we can do jaw better. Jaw trees, by the way. Like, we can, <laughs> you know, like we can always do better. And it's going to take all of us, you know, traditional conservationists, hunters and anglers, outdoor recreationists. We all need to be in this together. And I'm not, you know, I, don't, I, I hope I don't come across as, as unduly dismissive of those guys, but uh, that, that attitude is, is tired. Yep. I, I, 
I don't know what to say. I agree with that 100%. And that's exactly what I saw in that article. And, you know, I'll leave that in the show notes. You can look at it yourself, comment on it um, if you feel so inclined. But I don't know. They, You're wrong they, if you say anything bad they, against it. They definitely, they definitely like called out the Outdoor Industry Association in there. So I can't wait to see your response to this, Lewis. I mean, there was like a direct call out in there. Yeah, I mean, Outdoor Industry Association, those guys are good partners of ours, man. They're, they do good work, and they're, I think they're underappreciated. Um, should, we get, um, should we get our first quick guest on to answer the next mail? Um, I know he's, he's on a schedule. Okay, well, let's see if we can bring is this the, him on. Is this the boat volume question? Mm-hmm. I have strong opinions about this also. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, Snow, are you there? I am, yeah. Well, welcome back to the Hammer Factor. Thanks for having me. Um, so we have on the Hammer Factor, Snowy Robertson, head boat designer at Dagger Kayaks. And we had a question come in, and uh, we had actually a couple questions come in. Um, let's start. I'd say, I'd, say one, I'd say one and a quarter questions come in. So let, let, we'll start. We have one about uh, vote, uh, boat volume, and then we have another one that comes in about the uh, release of the RPM. Are you ready for this, Snowy? This sounds exciting. So yeah, those are pretty different, but uh, then they're not combined, right? Just no, two different questions. No, no, yeah. two, two different questions, but we figured you were the guy to answer for both of them. I can try, for sure. Um, the subject line is the dagger RPM. Um, he says, obviously, leave this out of the show. Fuck dagger, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. <laughs> they decide to come out with this limited edition. There is only going to be so many made RPM. They know good and well they actually put these boats into normal production. People would buy them. I don't get it. It's like those assholes that come door to door and are like, if you buy this today, you'll see 25%. Just my two, two cents. Off topic, I enjoy the show. Keep up the good work. John, I've been a real admirer of your work since LVMs. Also, I could be known as the most southern listener in the lower 48. Look me up in Watumpka, Alabama. I've also been drinking bourbon. Stay yeasted. <laughs> so, um, Do I have to drink bourbon before I respond? Well, <laughs> obviously, the guy's you know, sitting at home and you know, drinking bourbon and <laughs> probably woke up just the next morning like, oh, God, I can't believe I sent that. But tell us about this RPM launch and the limited edition thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess, uh, you know, was it Josh? I, I guess he must have some, uh, some kind of internal struggles. You know, it's hard to hit the brand when you, uh, when you obviously love the product that much. But, um, uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, it is a limited edition release. So we've, uh, we're releasing the RPM and the RPM Max. And that's the RPM Max is kind of a bigger deal than the RPM in a way because it's not been available. But um, this year is Dagger's 30th uh, anniversary celebration. And so to go with that, we really wanted to do this, this, uh, this big kind of um, celebration. It's really, um, uh, you know, it's about the people, product, and passion. And we... We sort of want to um, thank people for, you know, for supporting Dagger for so long and for, for being in business and um, and really kind of celebrate that with with products and, and people. And so, uh, you know, obviously the, the RPM, when was it, 95 that was out? And then we did a re-release in 2013. And so to celebrate to 30 years on, we wanted to um, bring it out in a limited edition form. And, and uh I don't quite understand the sort of door-to-door sales analogy. That's an interesting one because I guess 
as any notoriously cheap kayaker, you know, if someone came to your door offering you 25% off a kayak, you'd probably, I guess, dig, dig down the back of the couch and find some, some quarters and buy it. But, um, yeah, we wanted to just really thank people and just um, have this limited edition release. The big thing about it is it's the same boat, essentially, but it has entirely new outfitting. So for the first time, we've put our um, Contour Ergo outfitting in it. It's super safe and um, uh, kind of um, bringing that, that to the table. Um, but it's, so, uh, so, so to be clear, you can buy an RPM anytime you want. You just can't get this limited edition Rpm except I mean, for this year. No, this, this, this is these as they are in three limited edition colors. Um, so they're going to be on a limited availability. And so we um, wait those colors the, or the RPM colors, period. But like next year, I'll be able to get an RPM in their stock colors, right? That's not the plan. No, the plan is to do it just this year. Um, just That's in it. these colors. And we kind of so if you want an RPM, this is your chance. This is it. Yeah, go go out and buy it. And you know, we we um. So when we launched it, uh, sort of officially, um, we launched it into our retailers, and we actually we actually sold to the retailers um all of the stock within 24 hours of that boat. Um, so why not just put it back into production? I, I got to be honest. I'm with Josh on this one. I, I wasn't at the beginning, but now I am after what you just said. I'm not buying any of this. You're not. <laughs> so so do you? This is a door, so this is like a door to door scam of some sort. Do you have the same dry suit that you? Uh, you it's more like Jehovah's Witnesses. Mail? I wouldn't say it's like salespeople. It's more like Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your to your house. <laughs> but you can have a good chat with Jehovah's Witnesses. They're kind of worth opening the door to sometimes. But why not? Uh, I mean, why not put the boat back into production? I mean, seriously. Well, you know, I think you you, you know this. You know, skew counts and maintaining all of that, and it it also doesn't have this sort of, wouldn't have that sort of unique sort of. Thank you, like limited edition. I mean, they're available. It's not as though you can't get them. They all, sure, they they flew off the shelves. And like I said, we sold um, all of our stock into retailers within 24 hours, which is pretty incredible. But they're still available in retailers. So if you want it, I guess sort of now's the time to go get it. And and um, you know, really, what we did also with with pricing. So it's so it's coming in as pretty much one of the um, cheaper boats from any of the leading uh, whitewater companies um, of that type, it's it's available at that cost. So we're, again, passing that along as a thank you. Um, you know, we're not giving it away for free. That's, that's you know, all we can do. But it's um, it's sort of like, hey, here it is. Come get it. Um, and, and uh, yeah, that's our take on it. So are you familiar with the Strategic Outburst Reserve, the SOR? I have heard of this. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard of it. And, uh, <laughs> It's and you guys have, I mean, this, this conversation would not be finished because, until we discuss that. <clears throat> but but oh. in the same vein, you know, that, that product's being controlled. You can, not everyone can get that. At least you can go out and buy an RPM. Well, can, are we going to re-release the outburst? That might be a little tricky. Hmm. Mainly because there's no mold left for it. Oh, really? the value just so, went through the roof. I know exactly. They're I wish I wish I bought, I'd bought like a. At this point, it's just like they're, they're trading left, right, and center. But no, we don't have the tool for that. We didn't have the tool for the RPM Max. We had to ship that back from uh, from Europe. Um, and we also what'd you do with the tool to... of the outburst? Like, what, why would you? What, what happened with that? Is it like in someone's garage somewhere in in <laughs> South Carolina? You just don't know where it is, or did you actually ruin it? Like, throw it away? I think it might be sold at the uh, the jockey lot or the flea market somewhere. Um, <laughs> someone's got it. No, very often um, we'll recycle uh, those tools, so we'll actually um, recycle the metal, and um, you know, it gets to a point where you just we can't store every single thing. We have limited space, and. Um, you know, it's as much as you try and predict down the line whether this historical sort of resurrection of a model might come back. It's 
sometimes when it's sort of it's had its initial course and its initial run in the market, you don't think that it's ever going to sort of come back again. I think the RPM was just so unique because it was, you know, right at that, um, right at the cusp of change from displacement to planing holes. And there were other boats that released at the same time, but it was, it was just a really kind of approachable design. It works so well for, for many different styles, but, uh, well, I can hear cheering coming from the, the SOR people right now. Oh, SOR. inventory <laughs> just quintupled in value over the past few minutes. Can we move on to our next question? So basically with the RPM, it is a limited run. And are you going to make another limited run next year and another limited run after that? Or is this it? Can you say definitively that we are done making RPMs on this run? Continual limited runs. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you definitively, but I would expect with a big push, this big house celebration, this might be its last window. Don't don't quote me on that. But really, it comes a time where you know everything. Co- you know, it, it, it costs money to keep that within the line with any product. You, can, you can't just have everything you've ever done because it's time to sort of move on and and um, you know apply ourselves to designing something something next, something new. But um, for now, kind of get them while they're hot. Okay, there you have it, Josh. Um, another one right over to you, Snowy, where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go right into this one. This comes at us from uh, Matthias Fosted. He's written right? before. Yeah, he's I think a- you mangled his name last time. Yeah, also. of course I did. He says, hey, hey Hammer Factor, this is a, is a really good email. He says, I've heard conflicting accounts about this topic, so I figured it's time to get the real scoop from you guys. The final word on all things paddling. I like that. Is it true that boat manufacturers have no way of accurately measuring volume in their boats? I've heard anecdotes of the ballistic factory giving very rough estimates of volume because they would crack a six-pack and start pouring gallons of water into the boat. Inevitably, they would lose count and just end up guesstimating the volume. I find it hard to believe that manufacturers have no better way of measuring volume. Couldn't they just cover the cockpit, sink the boat in a pool, and measure the displacement? That's question one, but hang on, Snowy, before we jump into that one. His second question is whether volume even matters. A recent controversial example comes from the Waka OG. Lots of folks were worried about that boat being too big at 95 to 100 gallons, but Waka defended the size of the boat in saying that it doesn't feel like a massive boat if it feels perfect and people really need to stop judging a boat based off volume because it's where the volume is located rather than the actual figure. Is this true? Or is it just a way to widen the paddler weight range for the boat and thus increase the market for that boat? Mm. Um, he says, if you, if you choose to use this question on the show, I realize it's a bit wordy, so feel free to paraphrase. I read every word of that, Matthias. <laughs> um, okay, question number one. Do you really measure the boats, or is it just hocus pocus? I like the idea of uh, drinking a bunch of beer and pouring, pouring into a boat and uh, figuring it that way. But we actually... Um, you know, we used to use a flow meter, so you can actually connect that up and actually just fill up a boat and um, and just see see how much it holds. There's ways of doing that. You kind of just block off the cockpit and fill it that way. But now with everything kind of driven through our um, sort of CAD design process, at least on the front end, we can really accurately re- uh, measure that volume. So we can get, you know, um, spot on uh, calculations of what that's going to be. Um, and then actually kind of use that, that, uh, those numbers and sometimes use them within sort of naval architecture packages and, and kind of look at um, sort of displacements and uh, kind of waterline lengths and um, wedges surface area and all that kind of stuff. Um, Is, does every boat manufacturer out there, no matter how small, have more or less these same tools at disposal? Like does uh, Blistic have the same kind of stuff? 
the the volume measure up front for sure. I mean, we would just connect that up to a hose and, and just uh, and just turn it on. And, and uh, no, no, I'm saying with like the CAD software you guys are using. I mean, is that ubiquitous CAD, now? CAD pro possibly not. It really just depend, depends how you start your design off. So that side of things, maybe not. No. So um, it could be that Blistic is in fact cracking cans of beer <laughs> and pouring water I, into a boat. I'd like to think that, yeah. I, okay. I, 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 that's a much more fun approach, to be honest. With you. I think that's, I'm, I'm totally down with that that concept. But um, there are just ways of doing it. But we we can get those numbers. But um, I guess you know when we call them numbers, that sort of leads into that second um, portion, which is, you know, really that's what they are. If you take that number up front and you look at it along with length and width, it's it sort of you could use it as a guide to find your sort of rough sizing range. But don't don't use it as the fact it's like, OK, that's a 90 gallon boat. It's way too big for me or, I'll, you know, that's that's too small. I mean, it's just uh, it's kind of a recommended um, tool to uh, to kind of help with us with a decision on, on what boats going to fit. Um, you know, we we used to size just off um, length. So you'd have the uh, with the old Nomad series, for example, the Nomad 8.5, the 8.1. And so those were kind of length designators. So they'd be like, OK, that's a small version versus a medium. Um, I think I'm trying to think which companies. I know Wavesport used to size off gallons. So you'd have the, you know, the diesel 80, um, quite a few other companies sizing off gallons. So that sort of shows what their size range is. But we, we kind of looked at that. Well, what does that really mean? It's just, a, it's just a number. So on the last Nomad series, we went to small, medium, and large. So at least it's kind of like picking, you know, an item of clothing. You can say, well, I'm, I'm a small, medium, large. But Again, that, that kind of volume, it's, it's really where it's all, all placed. So I sort of, I'm sort of on board with Wacker, really, is it, um, you know, you could have a five-foot-long boat with 80 gallons and a 10-foot-long boat, but with 80 gallons, they're going to be completely different shapes. Um, or you could put, you know, 80 gallons of volume all in the ends versus in the, in the, in the middle. It's just, you know, going to paddle completely differently. So it's... Um, it's really down to a guideline of, of that number and how you use it. Um, you know, that's going to be personal preference as well. So someone who's, who's heavier in an 80 gallon boat might just like the way that it, it sort of displaces and actually sits in the water. They preferred it to sit sort of lower down in the water versus riding high and dry. Um, it's uh, that number's only somewhat relevant. I think people read into it a lot more than they should. I agree with that. I I totally agree with that. I mean, I feel like when I see a new boat come out, I don't even I don't even pay attention to what the gap, the volume number is. I look and see how wide it is and how long it is, and look at the hull shape. And like yeah. the, the volume number is is totally meaningless to me. Me too. I, could, like, I, couldn't, you're, I couldn't name a, a a gallon volume of any of the boats I've ever owned ever. I couldn't yeah. even guess. Yeah. Unless it's, you unless you're doing mystery moves, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, you kind of get into that into negative, uh, negative buoyant point at that point. But uh, um, it's kind of interesting at demos and events and things. People will be like, "Well, what's the volume of this?" And I, I you know, as a designer of these boats, I never remember. I'm like, maybe I should. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I, w I wouldn't say I make up numbers sometimes, but I, I definitely take a bit of a bit of a guess at them because again, you could throw like a British term and be like, "Well, it's actually seven cubits." <laughs> Ten hectares, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Two uh, Yeah, that's sort of. It's it's just so only so relevant. And I also I look at it a little bit in terms of all these numbers. I've, I've actually been looking at mountain bikes recently, and there's just all this like sizing and geometry and head tube angles. You know, it's like you know slack head tube on a bike, 62 degrees or whatever, and then they're up to like 70 degrees, and you know they they seem like fractions, but they make a 
a huge difference, but it's combined with everything else. So that one number doesn't really mean anything until you combine it with, you know, every other relevant bit of geometry. And so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, don't don't read into that that number that number too much, but um, you know, really look at use it as a guideline, and then you know, look at the lengths and the widths and how you like to paddle. Um, I mean, if you took if you took to just true displacement and, and that volume. You know, then you've got aerated water and you've got different volume around you of the, of the stuff you're paddling. And, you know, whether you've eaten cheeseburgers that day or you're carrying breakdowns or whatever, it all, it all starts to, like, throw it off, really. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and it seems like it's like, you know, like if you added an inch around the seam line and just raised the deck up an inch on the whatever boat you're paddling, if it's a creek boat, I mean, it's going to get the, the deck's going to be in your way, but it's not going to really change what's going on below the waterline. And that's going to add a huge amount of volume to the boat. You know, it's like he's right. And like, you know, that Waka, the OG, like, yeah, I mean, it's a big boat, but it doesn't really paddle like a big boat. You know, I think people yeah. just get thrown off by that stuff. Do you think there's ever been a manufacturer out there, Snowy, who's made a boat like <laughs> that they did the volume when they were all done with it and they got their length and width and everything? And it was like, came out to 98 gallons, but the market says that boat needs to be 83 gallons. Do you think there's ever just like a, like, do you change the design because you find out something's different? Is there any kind of pressure to ever alter the design so it fits into what's like acceptable in the market? Um, you know, it, possibly with numbers. I mean, sometimes those, those numbers are what sell. I mean, I know, um, you know, take the sort of sea kayak market. We we worked on our Dagger Stratus, which was definitely you know it's um it's sort of this sort of crossover. It's quite performancey, sort of white watery, um, sort of coastal rock hopping boat. But it's a wide boat for what it is. And um, I was at a uh, sea kayak symposium one time, and and some of the sort of um sort of diehard um sort of sea kayak folks were like, oh that boat's way too wide. You know, it's not going to work. But it's um it, you know they were really looking into those numbers. And if it's over a certain number, then they almost like don't consider it to be a true sea kayak. Mm -hmm. Um and so I think the same thing could be true with volumes right now. If people are reading into them that much, um they might be like that number's not right. It's it's not going to work for me. So yeah, some some people might have kind of fudged those numbers a little bit. And um <laughs> I think back to when we were working on the the Phantom originally, uh, we remember talking with the team sort of what we were looking for up front and you know we we, we said under, under nine foot obviously for that sort of race race length and then um we had a really set number of, of width in mind so we were pretty narrow we were really too narrow at the start um but also we wanted it to be around about 90 gallons and so i designed the first boat and, and measured it and it was like okay that's not 90 gallons and i kept like squeezing i couldn't go any longer i could kind of carry volume out to the ends i guess but i kept going like taller and then looked at it and it just it just looked wrong like it was just this really tall um narrow long boat and uh yeah it kind of it paddled a bit like a lawn dart at first actually um but uh yeah that, that comes down to chasing numbers we were just like trying to hit that number a little bit and um we ended up at 89 gallons but it was really where that volume was placed not really the number it was it, proportioning it and making it look right ultimately well there you have it matthias volume does not matter so <laughs> period period i think that uh we've all pretty much in agreement on that so all right snowy well thank you for coming on the hammer factor and uh i'm sure that josh and matthias will look forward to hearing your answer we've got to figure out some way of kind of getting you know um uh josh back in you know into the fold and 
keep him happy with with votes there. But uh, <laughs> um, we will send we'll send him a sticker. How's that sound? Mm, that's a good idea. <clears throat> thanks, Nelly. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Nelly. I've, yeah, I've always been annoyed by the boat volume thing. You know what I mean? So I didn't know it was a thing. Like I honestly didn't know it was a thing. Uh, I've, I've, I, mean, I know people ask ask me about it. Like I, I I don't know. I have no idea. I, I think it's time that we used our Hammer Flat Factor platform to put that metric to death. Yeah, that's done. Yeah. That's a done thing. Right. Like like, it, like no more no more zero degree yeah. paddles. No more talking about boat volumes. Yeah, because it doesn't matter. We should go right into the prion. Hey, since we're on boats. Since we're on boats. Um, okay, so there's a new boat. While I get our uh, anonymous I mean, boat review guy back for a, for a little quick This is crazy. Appearance. I mean, well. Is this real before we get into this? It's real. I, look, I, I looked it up on their website. It is real. Okay. Prion, okay. Prion has, has a new boat out. It's called the Cocaine. <laughs> this is a real thing. I mean, unless you guys it's are Prion totally cocaine. messing with me. And yeah. No. No, that's a real thing. That's like IR naming a dry suit the date rape. <laughs> the date rape. No means yes. That's the mo- that's, that's like the slogan. Uh, it's 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 I I just can't quite believe it's real. And I know that you say it's real and you looked at the website, but I think we need anonymous boat review guy to come on here and just see is there really a cocaine and what he thinks of it. Anonymous boat review guy, are you there? Yes, hi. Well, all right. Well, that voice we know and love. Well, welcome back to the Hammer Factor, um, ABRG. Can you tell us a little bit about the new cocaine? Sure. The, the cocaine monitor makes a lot of sense for Prion. They're known for boats that blow their lines and take bumps. <laughs> okay. They also leave you jonesing for more. <laughs> Okay. And, and while, in, while in the past, boat companies have thought better of using controversial names for their products, now that Prion has led the way with the cocaine, the door seems to be open for the whitewater industry to use shock value to sell their wares. <laughs> okay, please. Uh, what, what, what kind of things were you thinking? Well, through my secret industry connections, I'm able to reveal a list of product names being considered for next year. <laughs> okay. Well, this is this is unexpected. This is breaking. This is breaking news. <laughs> what, yeah, what it, it, it's a big scoop. You're only going to hear on Hammer Factory. <laughs> All right. What do you got? Well, Waka is producing a boat that is exclusively for people that paddle the Columbia River Gorge. It's going to be called the Whitewater Supremacist. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll need to get one of those. Josh Reed's <laughs> needs one of those. Yeah, Astral's also going after that market. They're, they're going to rename the Green Jacket. It's going to be called the HPV because it, be, <laughs> it can be detected on nearly every paddler living in Jagorge. <laughs> Okay, this is like this is like we're scooping the outdoor the paddle sports retailer show everything. Yeah, you bet. Corin Addison, he's got a really nice playboat in the works. It's so easy, fast, and loose that he's calling it your mom. <laughs> back to mother's. Back to mother's. <laughs> nice callback. Okay. And 
An open canoe manufacturer, Blackfly, has a new tandem canoe for couples. They're calling it the open relationship. <laughs> okay. All right. These sound like winners to me. Yeah. And, and recent Hammer Factor guest, Dan Gavir, he's written a guidebook for women. <laughs> What's the guy? Do you have, has it got a title yet? Yeah, it, it details runs where there is a lower risk of hitting their pretty faces. <laughs> it's called Mansplaining the Mankless, Gavir's Guide to the Glassy Ceiling. <laughs> you see, it, it's funny because Dan Gavir said misogynist things on Hammer Factor. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we get it. Uh, uh, okay. Piranha, they're known for their awful color blends and terrible outfitting. Their boats are so obnoxious on the outside and so extremely uncomfortable on the inside that they're calling their next boat the Cyberbully. Free <laughs> topic. It's good stuff. In, in Gallusport, they're coming out with a composite boat that they believe will kill every plastic boat on the market. They're calling it the genocide. <laughs> well, we got some very, I mean, I guess the cocaine is truly leading the way. Yeah, yeah. Clay Wright, he's developing a short boat for beginner racers. He drew inspiration from a fellow internet troll in calling his new design the Jackson Stable Genius. <laughs> Okay. Um, da Dagger, they've got a new creek boat that murders gorillas so hard, they're calling it the Harambe. <laughs> and, and, and finally, Weld, your company's secrets leak as bad as a level six dry top. <laughs> I know about Immersion Research's new men's dry suit. Mm. It's specifically designed for West Virginia raft guides, and I hear it will be called the paternity suit. <laughs> all right, there's a leaker. <laughs> the leaks must stop. That's all I've got for today, but if, uh, if Prion can get their new boat through customs, I'd love to come back and do the cocaine while on cocaine. <laughs> all right, there we go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anonymous Burt Review Guy, and we, we look forward to hearing your, your take on the cocaine. Thanks. Word to your mother. <laughs> Thanks, ABRG. Oh, my God. <laughs> we can't, no, we can't. I feel like we can't overuse ABRG. He's like a spice. Well, I mean, I just wasn't. But the, co even... <laughs> the cocaine story, though. Is there any other? Oh, my God. Well, we got a lot of... Let's, let's, get, let's go through these real quick, this listener mail, because we have to get to our special guest, Kevin Colburn, who is going to fill us in on the pack rafting revolution. We got a lot of people writing about pack rafting. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a thing. I had no idea. It's like oh, a yeah. little secret community out there. Oh, uh, yeah. A bunch of people are sending me videos of people like running Valcito and like stomping the 30-footer or 20-footer, whatever that waterfall at the top of that gorge is and like just crushing it. I mean, I had no idea. They're coming out of the woodwork, though. Um, <laughs> Julio. Do you want to get into this Julio email here? Well, can you surprise <clears throat> this one for us? This one kind of came in your way. Julio was a follow-up on our weed conversation, which I don't know if you guys heard as much as I did, but I had a lot of people talk to me and write me and just 
generally discuss the weed conversation we've had, and she seemed to represent uh, a pretty big faction of the people I talk with. Um, but her general complaint was that we didn't take the conversation where it should have gone. I mean, we missed a couple of really important points. Um, and she wrote a very long email, which I, I, I whittled down as much as I possibly can. Uh, uh, and I hope it, it still works. It makes some sense. And this is a good email. I mean, there's a lot of great points. I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can summarize it. I know we're kind of pressed for time. Um, her, 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 her big point is that if Dave, if Dave Fuseli is sponsored by a cannabis company, he's actually transitioning from, you know, making a choice of smoking pot yeah. to actually advocating it in the paddling community, especially with kids. And she mentioned how my kids and I'm sure other kids, you know, look up to Dave as an athlete and being an sponsored athlete has responsibilities. Um, and she, in the, in the, in the follow up to that, she was mentioning that um, uh, marijuana does, in fact, is it has killed people. She says uh, she was disheartened uh, during an episode that no one challenged Dave's claim that there had uh, haven't been any cannabis related deaths, particularly since you had a guest on your show last year sharing the tragic loss of his best friend, Makai in the Grand, after doing just that. Um, as a Colorado resident, mother of a new driver, the sharp increase of cannabis related driving fatalities in the last couple of years is pretty concerning. Um, she also mentioned the strength of mar marijuana at one point, and I actually had a couple of people write write me about that as well, how strong it is and, and how uh, dangerous it is or potentially dangerous it is to young young minds and young brains. So um, she's just basically calling us out on that, that no one got to the point. Yeah, she had some good. I think kind of her main point was we didn't talk about how it is a choice and it's something that you can do on your own time with your own group of friends or whatever. Crossing the line from doing that to being an advocate for other people to do it. And so right. we, we didn't really kind of touch so much on that line. She's got some good points. I think it's, legit, it's a legitimate point. I mean, what are my kids to make of that? You know, here we go. We got to give a big shout out here. Uh, this comes out of some Jeff Calhoun. He has, he talks about paddle length and some various things. He's pretty much in agreement with us on that, but he does give a big shout out to Rick Gussick on the cheat race. Um, he's been organizing that kickoff event for 20 years at the cheat fest. So, he has indeed. Rick Gussick. Rick Gussick. Yeah. Sorry. He is a fixture of the uh, West Virginia paddling scene. Yeah. 150 people in that race. Great event. He's uh, I mean, can you imagine 150 people showing up at a, at a, what, a 12 mile class four whitewater run? I mean, this takes, you know, hours to, no. to paddle down. No, no, no. I think it's amazing. 150 people. Great, yeah. And if you I want to go one year just for the sake of being at the start line at a 150 person mass start race. I feel like that's right? just like not to be missed. I mean, how many races? How many whitewater races are that big? Fibark? No way. Uh, no, I don't think. Fibark's I mean, how, I mean the green race people. is actually approaching that, right? Uh, we got like 170. We're a little bigger than that, but you know, I think it's. I, I just think it's rad to do something for 20 years because that's how long it takes for you to build up your event. That's the thing, right? Yeah, I mean, here's know, a guy who's been showing up every year with it, a stopwatch, in crappy weather, yeah, <laughs> getting it, this thing together. Exactly. And, you know, whether you know, and you know, you put this thing together, and eighty percent of the people are going to love it, and twenty percent are going to going to scream and yell and hate your guts exactly. for all the work you do. So, so thankless job. Big big thanks to Calhoun for that, and you know, huge shout out to Gusick. That's right, Rick Gusick. Gusick, to mm -hmm. Rick. Um, Twenty years. I know. 
I know what that's all about. All right, this comes at us from Nick Terry. He says he's always been a Coke Attack guy. Uh, this, this message is from Mr. Weld. Um, primarily because there are simply more options for choosing your look due to color customization. Everyone knows the main objective of whitewater paddling is looking cool, and it's simply too hard to do so while wearing an IR dry suit. Look at what hmm. you try to pass off as innovation, a teal version of the men's, men's seven-figure dry suit. Seriously? Well, if you step up to the plate and up the game with some dope pattern dry gear, you will have a loyal customer in me. To get you started, take a look at tie-dye camo and the S-O-L-O jazz cup design. A solo jazz cup. These are all tried and true looks that could really up the ante on stylish dry gear. Let me know what you think and feel free to send me royalty checks for these great ideas. Regards, Nick Terry. Yeah, you see, Nick tips his, Nick tips his cards here with that last sentence because he wants royalty checks from this. And it gets to the heart of the matter is that the people who want these fancy designs will never buy them. They want them for free or very cheap on ProDeal. Um, but, I mean, honestly, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, you go to make a dry suit. This fabric is not cheap. Um, we have to buy dye lots of fabric. You know, we buy 3,000 yards of fabric at a pop, and you're talking, you know, however many dollars a yard. So right away, just in fabric prices alone, you know, for one dry suit, uh, you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars of investment into uh, that fabric. And then you can divide that color up in a couple different, you know, you can pick three colors out of that 3,000 yards. Uh, and you have to pick those colors very carefully because you pick a dud, you're sitting on, after the garments are done, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of garments you cannot sell. We made that mistake years ago, if you guys remember, with the plaid. We made a plaid dry suit. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Everyone's like, you guys got to make a plaid suit. So we did. We sat on it for two years while our bankers went bananas. Uh, uh, and everyone else who's financially involved with our business were like, what are you guys doing with these things? Until finally Pat Keller started wearing it and everyone had to have it and it sold. they all sold out. Um, but the thing is, when you make a dry suit and you start charging upwards of $1,000 of these things, people get really, really conservative really quick. And we just don't have the money to take these gigantic risks. You know, you look at Burton, their least popular colorway of their least popular jacket, the craziest colorway they can come up with will sell a thousand times more units than the most popular dry suit ever made. Um, so it's very hard to do all these great things. I'd love to, but the fact was, is that it's just too risky. I was assuming that he was being sarcastic talking about camo and tie-dye and... I mean, <laughs> It's like it's like that's cool if you're the only one who has that, but then when like you and your four buddies have it, you just look like tool bags. <laughs> yeah. Also, Coca Tat, has been been making the same colors of dry suits since like 1983. Like seriously? Yeah, I didn't get that part of it, but I knew where you were going to go with that. Well, there's just no way to financially make it happen. And I mean, it's just yeah, like I mean, the other night I laid into Snowy, just who we just had on the show. I was hanging out with him at Oscar Blues and I was like, dude, you know, I, I like that Phantom. I got I paddled it for a few days, but I just need a bigger version. And he's like, well, we yeah. can't do it. And blah, blah, blah. It's just like the same thing. It's just the world we're living in. I mean, I, I tell Nick, here's what we can do. Mortgage your house or your parents house, whatever the situation may be. <laughs> Uh, to come up with a, the eighty or ninety thousand dollars we'll need to seed this project, we'll come up with a great print. We'll do the solo jazz cup. If it sells well, I'll pay you back. If it doesn't, mm, sorry. <laughs> How's that sound? <laughs> All right, moving on. This comes. This is another one to weld. Uh, this is from Matthew Stump. 
He says, weld only two boats, question mark. Uh, you're out of the club, man. There is a mathematical formula that cannot be argued, and you're doing that. N plus one. This does not and can never equal two. No, Matt Stubbs wrong on this, and actually Yontan from, from Astral uh, wrote me a text about this the other day and clarified it perfectly, and I was wrong too, but but I think Yontan has it perfectly. You need You need three boats. You need your creek boat, you need your brap or your brap clone, and you need your fetish boat. Fetish boat being whatever you're into. Play boating, downriver, attaining. Squirts. Squirts. I think that's that's the right math. Yeah, I gave it some thought too. And I think if I only had to live with two boats, I could I could do with a creek boat brap quiver. Yeah. All right. Having four is better. I think four is kind of where I'm settled in because I mean you don't always want to paddle your expedition boat, and it sounds like after this show, I'm going to have to add a pack raft to my quiver. Um, next email, this comes from Jonathan Kessler. He says, John and John and Lewis was thinking of something and wanted your opinion. I think a fair chunk of our southeastern paddling community and a greater extent those in the PN, uh, Pacific, Pacific Northwest have suffered uh, a loss due to unfortunate event on the river these last few months. I was thinking about my swiftwater rescue capabilities and experience and got introspective. I can throw and pack a bag well, but there's much more to the playbook to win a tough rescue. Do you think it should or could ever make sense for folks paddling class three and up to be required to take a course or even just be required to keep a throw bag or maybe a Z-drag by law just to place more emphasis on safety? I know for certain that legit uh, Swiftwater Rescue skills really come from experience more than anything, but I'm crazy to think that a bunch of intermediates on Class 3-4 run. Um, but am I crazy to think that a bunch of intermediates on a Class 3-4 run should have one or two people that are SWR certified to whatever degree or definition? Just a thought. Obviously, the river decides in the end. Jonathan Kessler, I'll throw this over to you guys. No. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, definitely not as well. I mean, who's gonna? Yeah, who's gonna? (laughs) Who's gonna supervise that? Who who understands kayaking more than kayakers? Like, we have a community. We can look out for one another. Make these decisions collectively. I I mean, I don't want to. Have you guys ever taken a swift water rescue class? I have, but that. But the thing is, I mean, I never have. Yeah, but the thing is, is. Do you have to stay up to date on it? Are there a million things? I mean, you could just go on and on. Regulating, that's not a good idea, but that doesn't mean it's not a good idea to take one. So Agreed. This comes as from the Zone Dog. And this is what I kind of always thought of the Zone Dog. Zone Dog on low water. That's the subject right? matter of this email. Um, Zone Dog, we've talked about Zone Dog. He's ridden before. He's a chronic narrow gripper. If you ever watch any of his videos, he's a near gripper. Um, you has, recognize him uh, with the basketball jersey yep. while he's paddling. Yep, yep. I enjoyed your last episode, especially the part where you talked about boat durability. I made It made me curious about your take on the art of paddling low-volume streams. Over my paddling career, I've developed a reputation for running streams at lower flows than most and feel like this has become a punchline for many paddlers who haven't mastered the skill of reading water. I often get overused responses like, I care too much about my boat to do that run at that level. However, it has been over 15 years since I have broken a boat. I have found that if you are able to read water, are deliberate with your body leans and angles for sliding along rocks, you can navigate your way down streams at lower, lower flows, oftentimes with no more abuse to your kayak than a typical level. At low flows, the water slows down, giving more time to avoid obstacles. 
also runs like the Tapioc, Upper Blackwater, and the Green Narrows, and the Little White channelize the water well so that a sub's 200 CFS run is actually quite reasonable. Too few paddlers take the time to develop these skills. What are your views on the art of low water paddling? Ooh, I'm not buying it. <clears throat> I mean, Bobby Miller's a hell of a paddler. We should say that. Don't let his low water... Narrow grip. Uh, narrow grip style subtract from that. He's, he's the real deal. But, I don't know. Gelman, I, I know where you're going to stand at this. I mean, he makes some great points, and it, it's sort of like... It's like going to the ski resort and ripping groomers on like a bulletproof hard pack day. It's like, like, you know, it's good for you in a way. And like, it, 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 I'm sure there's something to learn, but it just kind of sucks, man. Like, I like water on the river. I think it comes down to if you have to go paddling and it's low, you can go paddling. But any chance you can go when there's higher water, that's when you should go. And I just like, I don't know, man, like. Like the little white, like I love the little white and like, I don't ever want to get to the takeout and be like, like, ah, man, that was, that was kind of shitty. Like, I just, I don't want that. Like I would just rather let the river rest and I'll come back when, when the water comes up. What's your cutoff Lewis for the little white? Uh, uh, I don't know. I went this morning and it was like two eight. I had a good time, but I would have had more fun with some more water. That's kind of my take on it. I think, I think I'm about done for the season. Um, this comes, is this from Jaha Schwalden? The same Jaha Schwalden? Being a recent Hammer Factor subscriber, I've been going through old podcasts to catch up on all I've missed. In an attempt to put faces with voice, I went to Google to see what Geltman and Weld look like. After an extensive database search, the first picture I came across of Weld bears a striking, a striking resemblance to Michael Scott from The Office. Later. Josh Walden. Thanks, thanks, Josh. <laughs> Michael Scott and you know and we give a guy a moniker. Junior, we give a guy a moniker, <laughs> and suddenly he's like part of the team here. <laughs> Before we get into our true voicemails here, this is the last one from Nathan Woodward, and I love this one because you know what Nathan was poo pooing on the whole like paddle length and offset and everything that we've been preaching. He comes at us. This takes a big guy to do this. He says. I tried a 265 yesterday. I'm afraid you guys might be right. Shit, now I have to buy a new paddle. So, sorry about having to buy a new paddle, but you'll get infinite benefits in the future. Um, Dude, I... uh... Speaking of which, I had a weird... Nick Hines called me the other day, and he he works for Werner. I think he's worked for everybody in this business at some point or another, but he works for Werner now. And he, he was giving me grief about the paddle offset talking about how lower offsets are. And after a while, I'm like thinking, you sell paddles. What are you, what are you arguing about? We're trying to help you. <laughs> did, did, what, was he saying that you wanted a zero degree offset? He was, he was a proponent of the lower, of the lower, of the lower degree offsets for sure. Sorry. I was, try, I was trying to explain, I was trying to, as ABRG puts it, I was trying to mansplain to him that uh, he was simply wrong and he would one day realize that he's wrong, like uh, like Eli here. Um, but it, it, at the time of our conversation, he wasn't having it. But I did walk away thinking, why why wouldn't you want to promote this idea? Anyway. Yeah, I mean, when people get with the times, pretty much probably 90% of the kayakers in North America are going to have to buy new paddles. Seems like it would be good for business. So I think, but what do I know? 
Dude, I got to paddle with one of the uh, the Long Creek gangsters last week. Dang. Oh, really? Hi. Yeah, Hunter. Oh, yeah, sweet. Yeah, it was nice. He gave me a Keep Long Creek gangster patch. Nice. So that means I'm probably in the gang at this point. You're safe. Huh. You're safe. That means you can walk through certain areas with no fear. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a little nervous. I feel like we've, we've had some fun at the expense of the Long Creek gangsters. <laughs> when you when you when you go to the Slammer, you'll know what crew to hang out with. <laughs> oh my! Um, should we should we play some uh, voicemail here? What's your schedule, Mister Grace? Man, I don't know if we got time for these voicemails. We better. You know what? Like, oh man. I'm getting ready to, have to leave here in just a little bit. Let's get into let's we're gonna have to skip these voicemails and we're gonna get our uh pack rafting celebrity guest on the show here. Can I mention that there are snakes falling out of trees now on people? You should you should cover this while I get uh, our our guest on here. Yeah, uh if you got this is down your way. If you're to the Adesto River, the Edisto River. Yeah, that's well is, I know where it's at, it's south of here. Is it a whitewater river? No, 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 it's a flatwater river. Well, there's a dude paddling the paddling the Adesto River, and uh, two a rattlesnake fell out of a tree and bit him twice. Now the guy's in uh, in critical condition. I mean, it was a serious hey, thing. I I got an email from my dad about this, and apparently the the story is already falling apart. And the guy had actually just tried to pick up a rattlesnake. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> just did fall out of a tree. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we might be safe after all. Was it raining snakes? <laughs> Um, well, moving on here, um, let's bring Kevin Colburn on the show. Kevin Colburn um, works for American Whitewater. He's married. He's my neighbor. He has a lovely daughter. He has a lot of hard boats that I see on his car. I know he's got a Delta V over there and a Rockstar Playboat. But he's also a pack rafter. And before I get too far into this, um, does, is there anything I missed from that introduction, Kevin, or anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, just that it's the Edisto River. Edisto. <laughs> yeah, I, I can offer the definitive source on that. So. Okay. Right. Grace defined it as a as a Desto with a, such a certainty. Indeed, and it, I kind of feel like you're creeping me, man. You know exactly what boats I have. Oh, I drive by your house all the time. You know, like True. I can't. <laughs> like slowly. <laughs> <windows down. laughs> what you can't see is the quiver of inflatable boats uh the sea kayak the canoe i'm i'm a person who loves all things that float pretty much so kevin are you a lawyer for aw what is your exact job with them i am the national stewardship director i am not a lawyer i have a master's degree in environmental science so um i pretend to be a lawyer in a lot of meetings and uh, a lot of the work i do is like a lawyer but i also I'm an ecologist. Um, I do a lot of negotiation. That's my primary role. Okay, very cool. I know that. So uh, all we... the work, but like a quarter of the salary. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And the training. <laughs> so I kind of make it up on the fly a lot. Cool. Probably zero of the debt. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Good point. So, so Kevin, I, I brought up pack rafting a while back, and we had a couple of our listeners write in and say, hey, you should get a pack rafter on the show. I find it super intriguing. Weld and Lewis are kind of like, eh. So you're here to kind of talk about, as a hard boater, as a kiker and canoeer and whatever, why pack rafting? Why are you into pack raft? What do you do with them? All right. I can do that. So first of all, people might want to know what a pack raft is. 
I don't know if they know that. Pack rafts are basically a ducky. They're an inflatable kayak. They weigh four to 10 pounds. The really good whitewater boats are the upper end of that weight range. And they roll up about the size of a backpacking tent. And they're designed so you can put all of your stuff for overnight trips inside the tubes. So imagine a ducky, a really small ducky that you can take anywhere, including airplanes and uh, backcountry trips. So that's what they are. So why Packraft? Um, I think two reasons. One, they're really fun, like really fun. I mean, kayaking kind of makes you like smile ear to ear. Packrafting makes you like belly laugh. They're hilarious. You just, it's like going to the go-kart races with your friends. You like bounce off each other, bounce off stuff, you know, fly off drops. It's, it's really fun. Um, and the second thing is they're the right tool for the job. Like you guys were talking on the last one about specialized boats, like specialization and how fun it is to have a quiver that's just has these tools that are precisely correct for the job. Packrafts are that. They're great for backcountry trips. They're great for long hikes and they're great for air travel. Like you just want to go like on a trip with your buddy, you know, internationally or somewhere, you can just throw a packraft in your back. You don't have to have a car with racks. You don't have to worry about shuttle. Just go. It's like simple and it's fun. So where like where have you taken what where are some of your packrafting trips? Well, so I started packrafting in Montana when I lived there. And I'd basically done a whole bunch of exploratory creek boating. And I have a desk job. I can only carry my kayak so far. And I'd kind of run out of places I can carry my boat. And at the same time, I started to work on forest planning there and try to explore a bunch of the headwater streams there for, uh, to see if they were wild and scenic eligible, and try to like document them. So I, got, I actually asked Alpaca if they would give American Whitewater a couple pack rafts to help me document all these streams in the northern rockies in my spare time mostly <laughs> um and uh and they did so i started exploring all over montana and there's sort of these crews of people all around the world that are are embracing these boats there's you know people in montana uh kind of montana jackson hole you know montana wyoming there's a pretty good crew in colorado that's pushing the whitewater scene pretty hard uh there's crews that do canyoneering in the Southwest. Alaska has a huge community. And then there's gatherings all over the world, like Sweden and uh, New Zealand, Australia. So, so that's yeah. a thing. A Swedish pack rafting scene. I'm not it, there that. is. They're really into camo and uh, <laughs> like these long like, flatwater trips. In the far I'm picturing north. like death metal, like Swedish pack rafting, death metal, <laughs> you know, goth, the kind of like goth out. I don't Probably. know. Am I going the wrong direction with this? <laughs> no, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> so when you take so, off for one of these pack rafting trips, how much weight is on your back? Like, are you going for like a three-day trip or a two-week trip? Or what are you doing? I'm kind of a weird pack rafter. So I use pack rafts mostly for like long day trips, you know, hiking like 10 miles in. Or maybe like three-day trips where you just hike in set up a base camp and then yo-yo some forks of a creek and then paddle back out. So I bet we have like 30 pound packs, 35, like not much. Huh. And for a day trip, it's like a, you know, 12 pound pack or something. Can you run gorilla in a pack raft? Yeah. Has it been done? Uh, people have run the green. Spencer Williamson ran Oceana very successfully like uh, a month ago. Yeah. You can run some hard stuff. The, the pack rafts have, some Achilles heels in whitewater. They 
don't like junky lips of drops because you ground out on your butt and then you fall off on your face or your pogo. So that's kind of an inherent problem. And really steep holes, they just don't go through very well. There's a lot of resistance. So there's certain rapids you look at and you go, I don't really want to run that in my pack raft because I know I'll swim. But swimming doesn't count in a pack raft, and that's cool. Um, but you still, there are there are limits. But people are running like Viacito. People are running some hard stuff and running it with style. So it's not just flubbing down the river. Hmm. What's the... I think that one of the people that wrote in was commenting about pack rafters, and that's different than pack rafting. So Oof. pack rafters are like two different communities. There's whitewater people that wanted to do more backcountry. And then there's these like backcountry people that wanted to run rivers. And it's different. It's like these hikers that decide to take on rivers in a pack raft. And that's an interesting phenomenon, right? Because these, these boats have a really easy entry point into like class three. So you get people in class three or three plus with like no river skills. And they need to like be brought into the whitewater community and like learned, <laughs> you know? Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. You, you, you're, you have a very calm, convincing voice. Do you know that? Someone like you're convincing me, me to get into pack rafting. And I don't think that <laughs> yeah. was possible. I'm basically <laughs> like, here's my credit card, Kevin. I mean, <laughs> like, I just pay they're now. So they're so fun. <laughs> like you will just laugh your butts off when you're in a pack raft huh. and uh yeah have you ever gone on uh like any kind of significant trips where i don't know you're covering like 400 miles or 800 miles over the course of like a couple weeks or are these groups like that's that's kind of like some trips that i'd like to do and i think a pack raft would be good for it like crossing from one drainage going over a pass into another drainage and out and that kind of thing. Is there, is that a thing in the community? It's totally a thing. Yeah. I mean, there's the wilderness classic and in, in uh, Alaska where they do like a hundred mile kind of all sport race. There's all kinds of big, you know, hundred mile plus traverses people do. There's the Bob open, which is a um, kind of anything goes trip across the Bob Marshall wilderness that people almost always use pack rafts for. I don't, I've never done those. I started pack rafting the year my child was uh, born. So I've kind of had limited big chunks of time. Um, but I look forward to it. A lot of my trips are more in like the, you know, 20 miles in a day, kind of fast and light uh, trips or, you know, three days where we do 20 miles of creaking, um, you know, in a backcountry setting where we're hiking 20 miles too. What about low water scouting of canyons? Is there like a group of... Has anybody ever thought about going into like a canyon or some some section of river you want to no one's ever explored or whatnot and go in when the water there's no water or really low water because I mean they're light obviously so you could easily just throw them over a boulder and jump in below a rapid and stuff like that. Yeah, it's the Chris Harge's model, right? I mean, he tubes exactly. exactly to like learn the riverbed, and yeah, I totally want to join him in my pack raft. Um, <laughs> But yeah, um, people people totally do that, and and you do typically run things a little lower in a pack raft, and it actually makes like low water class four, like ridiculously fun, and like more fun than you'll have hmm. um, in a kayak. So what are the trusted brands in pack rafts? Like what kind of what's the gear setup? Like what do you want? Well, alpaca is kind of like 
they're the ones that really like design the first ones and design basically all the advances made in pack rafting were made by alpaca then there's a whole series of boats that are kind of other companies that base off of alpaca mm -hmm. and then air makes a totally different boat called a backraft so props mm -hmm. to air for not just you know kind of heavily borrowing designs um and that's more of like a more like a little raft almost but you can you can basically choose whether you want um, a skirt and have a really dry light boat or a you know like a self-bailing pack raft what and you, you can use? choose your level of outfitting what do you right. use what's yours what do i i use an alpaca and it, is it's that a, brand what model of the alpacalypse though the narwhal oh, that's is clever. like next level <laughs> the narwhal has like a better rocker profile um better outfitting better floor and uh, it's a big advance and these are inflatables yeah yeah they weigh like eight pounds and then they uh have you had a problem with them ever tearing or popping a hole in one of them or no i've gotten some pinholes i ripped one i ripped a prototype they sent me to try one time they they pitched this whitewater boat. I was giving them all kinds of feedback at one point, probably unsolicited and unwanted about how to make a better whitewater pack raft. And they sent me a prototype and I did rip that one in Montana, nine miles from the nearest road, like way the heck out there. And, uh, but it was a weird batch of material they just used for the, for the uh, prototype. It wasn't like a good material. So and, now they're pretty durable. And obviously you take patches and stuff with you when you're out, right? Um, Tyvek tape, the Tyvek same tape. stuff you put on insulation. You just slap it on a pack raft and you're good for like days, weeks. Huh? Yeah. What do you think, Elman? I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> would you ever, would you ever take a pack raft like, like for a bridge to bridge day run or like you would always take your kayak for that? I do take a pack raft for that sometimes. And here's why. You don't really want to figure stuff out 10 or 20 miles in the backcountry. You want to have it dialed, right? And pack rafts are a little different. And if you want to run hard whitewater in them or even moderate whitewater, you got to make some adjustments for kayaking. So I like to take it out. I do big laurel and hike back out. I do upper green and hike out. I just take it out every now and then to keep sharp. Well, as sharp as I get in a pack raft. It's not that sharp. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. I've, I've never sat in one. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get think, one. Yeah, I think I the key you. for me would be to like go somewhere that I would never go in a kayak, so I wasn't comparing. You know, that's really helpful. I mean, we did a trip this winter where we sea kayaked across Fontana Reservoir here in North Carolina. So sea kayaked five miles, and then hiked five miles up into the Smokies and paddled five miles back down in our pack rafts back to our sea kayaks, and then. You know, took the sea kayaks back across. It was super elegant, you know. And uh, it, what do you think about the guys who like do Grand Canyon in them and stuff? I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why not? Uh, kind of draw. The I think line. they're on our turf. They're on the kayak. They're on the hard boat turf at that point. I think. I'd rather, back off. I'd rather have a hard boat for that personally. But, yeah, but then those people are the same ones that will like fly to Mongolia and hike 300 miles in and do some first descent. And they'll be comfortable in big water because they ran the Grand Canyon. Ah, okay. I, hmm. I, I see where you're getting at with see, that. See, look at you. Yeah. God, you, can, you can convince me of anything, I think. <laughs> I'm kind of a pack raft zealot. Like, it's pretty funny. I mean, <laughs> so my buddy Chris Ennis, he was joking. He said that uh, he went straight from a carbon race boat to a pack raft and loves it. Like, they're, they're <laughs> endearing. Hmm. 
Man. All right, I'm intrigued. Let's do rants and raves. Grace, I know you got to go. I do got to go. And Kevin will want a piece of this as well. All right. You go last. So, Kevin, you can can chew over this for a minute. Okay. Okay. All right. Mr. Weld, can you lead us off here? I can because I have a good one. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's hear it. All right. I have a rant. And it's 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 kind of geared towards Calhoun, and, and, and but Calhoun's sort of the target. He, he's not maybe the specific of the problem. Calhoun has been on Rick's case and my wife Kara's case. Uh, she helps with the upper yacht race, and Rick does the cheat race. We discussed earlier about us coming up with boat like a like a regulations for uh, you know racing classes in boats, right? Here's what Calhoun needs to do. Calhoun needs to take the bull by the horns and fix his problem once and for all and stop bothering the race organizers with this who don't have time to deal with it. And Jeff, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make a website. You're going to call it raceregulations.org or whatever it's going to be. And you can solicit advice from whoever you want, get a board of directors, and you're going to come up with race regulations. And if you hold a race, you can choose to use those regulations. And you can say this is a raceregulations.org sanctioned race, and this is the qualifications. People can choose to use it or not. If you solicit the right people to help you come up with the, with the boat lengths and the classes, it'll be successful. And then every year you can review that and people can submit you know, their, their ideas and your board of directors can, you know, and I would say board of directors, it could be you and three of your pals or whatever, can decide what, how to make the cut. And then people can choose to use that system. And when you go to the race, you'll know exactly ahead of time that this is a, such, this is a race, whatever, .org sanctioned race, and this is the, quali- this is the classes. So Calhoun, stop bugging Gusick and Kara. Just do it yourself and do it right. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Kara loves that, by the way. Uh, I love it, too. (laughs) Yeah, we're all starting to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's easy. Um, All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead. I got a rave here, and this is, you know, probably not the best rave in the world. It's not really out there, but it definitely stood out to me this weekend as we had a an incredible flood in the Green River Gorge. And there was eight inches of rain in three hours, massive mudslides, people just mudslides envelop people's homes, the whole nine yards. People were cut off. Mudslides that are a quarter mile long, 15 feet deep, were covering roads, the only access points in and out of this mountainous terrain and whatever. And the fire, Saluda Fire and Rescue and the Fire and Rescue guys were out there from when it was storming and raining 24 hours a day, just busting hump, getting people out of there. So I'm just going to rave for those guys because I put in a lot, of, a lot of hours out there with various things, but those guys were out there day and night. So I'm just going to rave about them. Nice. Geltman? Are you guys familiar with those little things that people use to clean their teeth that's like dental floss turned into like a little tiny miniature hacksaw oh yeah you know what i'm talking about <laughs> oh yeah what the fuck like what like who is like like dental floss <laughs> with this needs is like a like a large piece of, of disposable plastic that's just gonna something, like rot something in like andy for... rooney here <laughs> so you like see him on the ground and you're like like one this is a disgusting piece of trash why don't you put your trash away and then two like why do you need this like what's wrong with dental floss like why do you need like a like a special contraption that's just like like creating plastic garbage to like like it just everything about those things infuriates me <laughs> I did Pick see what was on the ground the other day, and I was wondering what he was doing there. That's funny you say that. That's the only place I'm familiar with them is just seeing them on, on the ground. Like I'm, it's like litter. It's just it's terrible. <laughs> Stop that. Okay. It's like like the cat. 
cups of dental hygiene. I wonder what those are called. <laughs> That's going to be in the title of this the, of this this show. I'm going to figure out what those are called. Uh, would you like to shut us down there, uh, Mr. Colburn? Sure. Yeah. So, other than 390 degree offset paddles, which I adore, <laughs> I'm going to rave about the yeah. Do the math. Um, I'm going to rave about the Ocoee River because I went back there for the first time in like 13 years. Ocoee's not really my typical jam. You know, it's often crowded. It's got a road along it. I had so much fun. And, I, you know, there were not a lot of people out there. And it's just cool that you can go to a river and not necessarily have like, like really high hopes, but just so consistently you have fun. And the Ocoee totally did that for me. So cheers to a surprise great day on the Ocoee. Cheers to the Ocoee. I've spent a lot of time out on the Ocoee. Um, Before we wrap this show up, I got one more thing I want to cover, and this goes right at Kevin. So, Kevin, there was recently a sale of the dam on the green. There is new, or it hasn't happened yet, but it's under contract, correct? Yes. Yeah, they expect the sale to go through the first quarter of 2019. Okay, can you come back on the show at some point and discuss that and just how dams get bought and sold and the water rights that go along with them? Totally. Okay. Yeah. Super interesting story going on here with the Green River Narrows. And, uh, I mean, I don't know, Kevin. It could be crazy. It could, like, there's a period of time when it could get crazy. There is absolutely risk. Yeah. Um, but I will say, just generally, we avoided the like big bad risk of them just getting a license with no, uh, or not getting a license, getting a dam and being able to do whatever they want with it. I mean, there's like, a we avoided that bad outcome. Yeah, there's literally a one-page document that talks about the owner of the dam in North Carolina. It, yeah, what, is that the deed? What what was that one-page document you shared with me? What what do you call that? Do you know what I'm talking about? What it takes to own a dam in the state of North Carolina? Oh, well, no, yeah, there was a 1989 decision from FERC that re- that basically let Duke Energy have this dam with no regulatory oversight. And it, yeah, it was like a couple pages. And one of the things they said in that agreement or in that decision was there's no documented use of the river, like recreational use. So it's not navigable. So have at it. Do whatever you want with the river. Have a nice day. Yeah. So we'll, so get, we'll, we'll get into that. This is going to be a, a good topic to get into on the Hammer Factory in the future. But unfortunately, right now, I have to go tour kindergarten. So. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Thank, you, thank you so much for coming on, Kevin. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. That, was, that, was, that was remarkably uh, convincing. <laughs>